Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. everybody it's nico and i'm tk and that makes this of course our continued investigation into the sort of internal totemic importance and significance of characters this is formally the mc2 mc2.5 and now we're looking at other relevant titles that tie into the bigger picture of what marvel is hoping to get across with a series a line or characters and we find ourselves currently deeply ensconced in sort of like a completely forgotten 90s gem that we picked up, which is Slingers by Joseph Harris and Chris Cross with additional work by Rob Stull, Felix Serrano, Oscar Yamines, Eduardo Alpuente, Greg Lesniak, Jimmy Palmiati, Bob Almond, Javier Salteres, and Rich Parada alongside letterer Liz Agrafiotis. And this book, man, this thing, where did the fuck, how did, I just, I just feel like, I don't know, there's something about this book, man. You know, we started to move in this direction based on looking at some supplementary material that was like tangential to the MC2, you know, other versions of characters. And when we say other versions of characters, we mean like another daughter of Peter Parker. But that's how we really got into this questioning of the heart of a character, you know, what makes a spider totem, that kind of thing. And when we first really started getting into it, I kind of thought that we would just keep pulling like daughters of Spider-Man children of spider-man and that's how you look at other spider people this is really fascinating because these characters are not related to peter parker in any way their power sets aren't related to being a spider person Morlin would not be taking any of them to feed his need for spider people but this really does get to that idea that we are trying to investigate here what makes a spider person what makes makes a superhero want to put on a costume and sort of take up the mantle of the same values that Peter Parker got into when he became Spider-Man. Because that really is the heart of what a character like Spider-Man is about. It's that we can all understand where he's coming from and everybody's got their own take on Peter. We talk a lot about, you know, who is your this, who is your that, but I think we all have like sub this or that, you know, I'm a, I'm a, symbiote sun but my moon sign is totally cosmic you know what I mean like we have our those things and even if your Peter Parker is re- well no that's even what I think I'm trying to say even if you're Spider-Man you're like no he's Peter Parker I think we all have that non-Peter Parker spider character that we care about whether it's Jessica Drew because that hair or it's Julia Carpenter because that awesome costume or it's Maddie Franklin because someone's gotta like there's a reason that every spider character kind of gets that attention and a book like slingers is really about investigating just how many of those angles you can pursue in a single fell swoop yeah i think that's a really great way to put it and i think it's also what happens when you kind of go the long way around to get at the root of a 
spider-esque hero. Especially because I think what we're talking about is an era of comics that is worth considering how transformative it was for so many people. I think we often forget that Marvel wasn't exactly like corporate bankrupt or anything exactly before a number of new creators came in, but we were definitely seeing a sort of tough slowdown in the success for a lot of these characters especially toward the 90s and we saw a lot more i would say you know manic plays for continued relevance and i think that's what a lot of people thought spider girl was but that's not what spider girl was but i think there is something to be said for the fact that so many significant properties at marvel received enormous makeovers in a very short period of time from 1998 to about 2005 we saw the x-men Spider-Man, Avengers, and Daredevil get wholesale makeovers into some new beautiful creature. And then, you know, we saw the pattern continue with characters like Hulk. For X-Men, it was new X-Men. For Spider-Man, it was, of course, the JMS run. For Avengers, it was the bendisification of the Avengers with new Avengers. And, you know, Daredevil, whether you want to go about the Kevin Smith or the, you know, the bendisification of Daredevil, you've got your choices. Then there's, of course, Planet Hulk for characters like Hulk, where all of a sudden everybody was like oh okay Hulk's cool I would say that the Matt Fraction tie in to the success of the Iron Man film franchise is a little bit more significant than perhaps Extremis was but I am definitely looking with a set of goggles but you know Broob when Ed Broob was like hey guys I'm here have you ever heard about this dead kid oh I heard about this dead kid recently I was talking with some people and they were like there used to be this guy and his name was Stan Lee and he wrote these comics about this guy Captain America and he knew this kid this kid Bucky Barnes the Winter Soldier well, I'm going to call him the Winter Soldier. You guys just think he's dead, but I think he's the Winter Soldier. And the whole world just sort of went, he's got a cosmic cube. Don't argue with him. And so that's how we got Bucky. That's uh, that's comics history for you. So, that is a phenomenal roundup of how we got Bucky. And, and you know, no, I, I genuinely think that Winter Soldier is some of the coolest stuff that Ed Brubaker ever did. I might not particularly care for his personality in the comics, but I do think what was done was very in the spirit of all of the characters. It passes the totemic significant test. So, I don't know. I think we're really talking about a book that came out just before they said everything needs to be rebooted. Get it the fuck away. No, no, this isn't just new costumes. This is spiders are magic. <laughs> this is the X-Men are like chemical warfare <laughs> This is before the really big swing, but I feel like stuff like this in MC2, because they do start around the same time, are the kind of shots across the bow or the first little test runs that, you know, they might not be the same creative big swings as bringing back Bucky and they might not be the same kind of need cash now as selling off all of the property rights to the characters to other studios. But this is, you know, this is a test. I, I think given the fact that we only get 12 issues of this and given the format that it all comes in, I think it really does feel like, okay, are the kids going to be into some new cool teens and probably not. So let's not get too invested or do anything too big, but like, let's make some cool new teens. 
And the problem with the disconnect, I think, for me from actually creating cool teens here is that <laughs> we're entering an age where there was a little bit more, I don't know, like, I guess if I have to call, okay, if I'm going to call the new Avengers, the bendification of the Avengers, then I want to call kids being like, no, this is my story and I'm going to tell it the Linder Elabification of kids <laughs> programming, because I feel like there really is a sense of now I can tell the story I can be authentic I can give you what it's like that I feel for the most part youth markets didn't have and I know that it's you know 1997 so by definition it is all artifice neon culture and splenda but the heart of it is this emergent idea that this does not exactly pass the cool kid test it's close it's really close but so much of what was going on at Marvel really failed the cool kid test this feels like and I I keep saying reality bites. I think what I kind of mean is like, this is like a 25 year old or 24 year old film students main senior thesis at like film graduate school that goes on for a really long time in this world where he's still telling a story about his high school days. Like it feels not like, you know, no one's sitting here and being like Joe Harris, LOL, buddy, what the fuck? It's more like the corporate strategy here. What the fuck? That's, I think, a little bit more or my my confusion. Well, what's the confusion when you say that? There, oh, not, I think confusion is then the wrong word. I think mm. a better way to put it is that's sort of my continued historical befuddledment. The idea that these comics were really hitting what a disaffected or feeling uncatered to youth market was really looking for in the era that this came out is just so foreign to me. You know, now I feel as though Marvel kind of gets that they're not the ones putting the cool factor places. They're a little bit more the ones noticing the cool factor places, seeing what people are reacting positively to, and they work with it from there. They do what they can. And with that in mind, I feel like this was still an era where fat cats and suits were like, I'm going to set what's cool. And I don't think it really came off in a way that felt authentic then. And so perhaps in that regard, I can can easily see how this book not only didn't succeed but also is not culturally remembered in any way because yeah the more I think about this book with a little bit of space now that I'm a little bit less dazzled by it <laughs> I guess I guess I'm trying to say Slingers is basically Black Swan with a little bit more distance from it I'm like still good still good but maybe not as I can't believe they did that as I thought you know, it's funny because I mentioned this coming out around the same time as Spider-Girl and, you know, you pointed out that, well, let's put it this way. We've got Spider-Girl and we've got this coming out around the same time. And we have Tom DeFalco, who is definitely a little older, a little way past high school, not so much a fat cat in a suit, but the older company man coming in and saying like i'm gonna write a cool new teen and meanwhile we've got joe harris on slingers who is no longer a teen but at this point he's like 25 years old so you know he's not so far away from it these kids are in college he remembers college quite clearly at least and it's still kind of to the same effect just you know i feel like it the the part that 
sticks out no matter what is if you are working for a company like Marvel at this time, you maybe have gone past the moment in which you are able to tap into the spirit of the teen zeitgeist. And I think a little bit that has to do... and. That is not to say that we are limiting creativity by virtue of saying by working at the big two, you can't come up with something unique and one of a kind and different. That's certainly a not in more... 2022. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit more to comment on the reality of responsibility when you're telling a story in a shared universe with corporate concerns and corporate endeavors. When you're going to board meetings, when you're getting emails from the editor in chief of a multi-million dollar company wielding a lot of power, it's maybe just a reminder that you've graduated from that place. That's not to say that you can't tap into that mentality, because I'll be honest, I'm not sure that Grant Morrison has ever been a lady made of diamonds. <laughs> I think Grant Morrison writes a good Emma Frost, so I'm not saying that it's impossible to write something out of your immediate experience, but there is a, an authenticity, a cool factor, and you know, bringing up Grant Morrison is a great example. They never feel uncool because Grant Morrison has never cared if you think they're cool. Grant Morrison writes for Grant fucking Morrison. And Grant Morrison makes great books. And Grant Morrison wants you to like Grant Morrison books where possible. Pay that money. But at the end of the day, Grant Morrison was never like, I'm a cool teen. Check out my cool book. Doom Patrol is an accessible book starring cool hot kids. Doom Patrol is Riverdale. It's very much, I'm going to create Doom Patrol. Hang on to your asshole. Well, and Grant Morrison's kids in New X-Men are not like, wow, this dude gets it. He just is so willing to be Grant Morrison. The teens in New X-Men are not like super cool teens. They're not giving you big teen vibes. They are just so consistent with the Morrisonian aesthetic and voice that you don't care that they're not like you're not going to be looking to them for fashion advice. They are consistent with what a teen should be in the Grant Morrison universe, and that works just fine. And I'm not saying that Joe Harris doesn't have his own Harrisisms. <laughs> I'm not saying that he isn't harassic. I'm not saying that he doesn't have, I don't have a third one, but he's got it. I don't have it because he's got all of it, you know? So, but it's not the same thing as when Grant Morrison comes into a book and is like, you know, loud, crazy. No, I sometimes think that if, when Grant Morrison opens his mouth, just like blaring horn noises come out and everybody just nods along because they understand you just understand when you hear the sound uh so that's i think the difference it's just so different 25 years later to be i mean a person of any age writing comic books but especially to be like somebody who's in the 25 to 35 range the access that you have to the culture of young people you you know if you do the work and are willing to to observe, you really can, in something like comic books or any kind of fiction, you can 
write a good young person. Maybe we would say like it's not the most authentic and clearly this isn't a teen writing a teen, but social media really does give you access to a much better idea of what a young person's voice is at the time. 25 years ago, you know, as soon as you graduate college, as soon as you separate from like the big parts of the youth world, you pretty much were done unless you were a unique person that had access to the, you know, voice and thoughts of a lot of young people, which is like usually like teachers who are not writing comics. Or brand ambassadors for vodka brand. <laughs> Precisely. The two, you know, heroes of all teens. So, you know, in no way am I saying like Joe Harris really failed here. It's just such a different game. Especially because the Slingers needed to be completely created and explored fully in their first appearances. They had nothing inherent about them that satisfied the bigger picture. It wasn't like, oh, right, that's Ricochet from Amazing Spider-Man and Prodigy from Spectacular Spider-Man and Hornet from Peter Parker Spider-Man and Dusk from other Spider-Man. <laughs> it's just specifically, oh, right, those costumes I saw on a couple of covers. <laughs> Who does that fucking help, bro? <laughs> How does that paint the picture? Because like, that's, I think, one of the things that really has been like gnawing at me about this. <laughs> this is about cool costumes. That's that's end of the day. This is cool costumes. And this is action figures. And so when you open the book and it's this like, if you got number zero because you got a wizard comics <laughs> magazine. And so then you read the wizard comics magazine and you got the number zero, you see that it's about like this one kid who's like fucking manic, like <laughs> ricochet as someone who suffers gleefully from mania <laughs> ricochets fucking manic. And then you've got prodigy who is so fucking put upon. And then you've got, Hornet, who, man, I just want to, like, help Hornet. He seems savable. Like, he seems like you could get him out of this. And then Dusk is just like, uh, yeah, I maybe think that Dusk works the least. And I feel as though, since these were just cool costumes and not cool kids we already connected to, by foregoing and shortchanging the opportunity to get to know them better in a real way, I just feel like issue one feels like a freight train. Yeah, I mean, issue one is kind of nuts for a lot of reasons. Well, no, for the one reason, the fact that there are four issue ones and they are ostensibly telling one story from multiple points of view. They do that to a certain degree, but I they don't do it so well or, you know, so perfectly integrated that at the end of it, you feel like, man, I'm really glad they did four number ones instead of just like getting to the main story. Dusk, I think you're right that Dusk works the least. And the flip side of that is uh, she's kind of, with the exception of Ricochet, the one I'm most compelled by. But it's just tainted from the get-go because she appears to be a, at the very least, depressed person. And at worst, like just a seriously miserable young woman who maybe kills herself like it's not really clear and being vague about that is not a great look for a book like this but uh one way or the other she falls off a building to her death and then spends the first half of the whole series but especially these number ones just kind of wandering through the story being like a ghost person like being dead but alive 
vaguely looming. Vaguely looming. That is a perfect description. And she's got this really cool power set. I see so much potential. And the whole time that I'm watching this character, I'm thinking of all the things that I could see her doing in Marvel Comics through the next 20 years if this had been executed a certain way. But... Ultimately, that's all my fantasy. And in reality, uh, yeah, looming. (laughs) And there's something really important to remember. The key motivating factor for this book, right? The Meredith starts at, where does she work? Unicorn Palace Hospital? (laughs) Seattle Grace. Okay, so she works at Grace Under Fire Hospital. (laughs) And uh, on Desperate Housewives, it's Mary Alice doing the unthinkable. Mary Alice, what's did you do and on lost it's the plane going down i don't even have a joke but it's the plane going down you know what i mean here the motivating factor is dusk's very questionable death and it's not in the first issue can you imagine if everyone was like no to understand this movie you have to watch this commercial prequel don't come to the movie expecting the setup in the movie that you can only get on vhs from a specific pizza hut Yeah, yes, yes. They made this so inaccessible. And I just kept thinking it's not possible that what they're saying is there's four covers with four interiors. Because as I'm reading the one I'm reading, and it's so ricochet heavy, and I'm like, yeah, I love this. Oh my God, this is the ricochet version. There's four fucking different versions. And I, for my own reading purposes, did a 92-page supercut featuring every original page, more or less in an order I could read it. Wait, hold on. Did you make that? Yeah. Oh, holy shit. Thank you. I read the individuals first and then I went back and read the supercut. but I really have to applaud you because that actually, despite the fact that, you know, it ends up making it too long and then insufferable, it really helps on a second reflective reading to allow you to understand what's happening. Because between the 20 pages of Zero and the 92 pages of the total Slingers number one, this is a nearly interminable read. A hundred 12 pages represents a mass fuck ton of material and I actually think one of the most clever things they did was the covering system where it's this rotating almost like triptych of characters with a character sort of fleshed into the background with their name in front of them so the three that are down as figures are you know looking very action figure like are not named but the character who is sort of the again Looming figure is named. I noticed that Dusk being in her very dusky form is completely covered in shadow. Even in the cover where she's just pulling a straight up destiny in front of Prodigy. But the thing that is of note is she's then not really in the book. So if you got any version but hers where she's truly a looming specter, you got pretty much an accurate interpretation of Dusk's involvement in the book from the cover. Yeah. And this is a fourth of of this team that there's because the three guys which is the other thing which is, there's one woman and three men share more or less equal space in this story overall i think ricochet is clearly the standout and there is a little bit of a lean at all times towards making this dreamy dude the the eventual like he's the body they want to pull out of this at the end if none of it is going to work but all that said there's a lot of focus on the other two 
to. And Dusk, what I think was really intended to be a mysterious, ethereal, sort of unknowable quality, just means that there is one of them that is not present as much. And when she is present, like when she's depicted on page, she still doesn't seem super present as a character in the story. And I even think that translates further into their covers. Mm -hmm. The warmth, the bright, the strong, the eye-catching, looking you right in the soul of Ricochet's blue and white cover. Prodigy's cover, where it almost looks like his mouth is partially muzzled, really heavily weighing in on Dusk reaching out for him, like the two separate sides of this coin that they represent. You have the deep, rich purple of the Hornet cover, and then I just flat out get a terrible feeling looking at the Dusk cover. I just get a terrible feeling from it. Basically, it's just a silhouette because she's in all black. She's like a person made of shadow when her powers are active. She travels as a shadow and like teleports as a shadow. And there's all these cool effects happening where, you know, she's like swirls of shapes in black and she shows up one place and ends up another. But this page is just like she put on a head to toe bodysuit that was black so she could change sets on a play when the, you know, lights are dimmed. Yes, she is full on stagehand. She's a little bit stagehand, a little bit Nemesis from Alpha Flight, a little bit Grendel by Matt Wagner, which is basically Nemesis from Alpha Flight. I think part of what throws me off about this book is we have Hornet, Eddie McDonough, Prodigy, Richie Gilmore, Ricochet, John Gallo, and Dusk, Cassie St. Commons, who literally sounds like an outlet shopping center in upstate New York. I am grateful for the this is what you need to know that we get that tells us who all of these people are. This is too much prior canon for everybody's first fucking issue. <laughs> the four issues that we get really ought to, you should need no, here's what you need to know. These four issues should be used to give us all of that. And then we go into the story. And it opens with crazy enough dusk spotty and it's Spider-Man happening on it, which again, we're spending a lot of time focusing on Spider-Man, which I understand it's a spider book. I get it. But like, I think we have too many characters that need personalities to spend this much time on Spider-Man. Because the whole point is there's like a void, a lack of Spider-Man that these kids think they should be filling. And the smartest thing that you can do is literally show that void by having a lack of Spider-Man. Yeah, a thousand percent. Now, one place this book did not suffer for me at any point in this first monolith was the art. (laughs) Much better than Zero. Not that Zero didn't have good art. I just think the art here is charming. It's so overwhelmingly 90s. It Mm -hmm. is kind of like what I think if somebody said, draw a 90s comic. This is what you draw. This is just it. You don't have a whole lot of other places places to go you could add a pouch but like the hyper saturation and lusciousness of the greens in the johnny pages followed by the depths of the black in the dusk pages there is a a real harshness to a lot of the tonality that is used throughout this book a lot of the reds are particularly abrasive and i think there's something very significant about a book that was at the real early on 
subset of hyper-popularized deep shading where we're getting much more than just those flats. Not that just flats are bad, just flats are cool. Everybody just get flat. But I think the real world of color comes alive as we delve into this digital shading. And I think while a lot of it's very blocky, a lot of very chunky, and a number of the panels maybe specifically look like they might have been reused to get through this 92 pages, I think what you have is a really attractive package. Yeah, I mean, it really is a quintessential 90s piece of art. And there are a lot of times where when you say that, what you're kind of saying is, unfortunately, this feels dated and it's difficult to relate to. But at its best, a comic that really reflects the era that it came from, while you can't say like, you would def- you could definitely publish this in, you know, 2022 and everybody would relate to it the same way. What you can say is you can read it in 2022 and have something that is kind of more than nostalgia for the era. I think it still becomes, I want to say relatable, but I think it ends up reflecting the best of the time that it comes out of. I think that it has a lot of that sort of Marvel House style energy, but it also channels some of the best of Vertigo sort of, you know, Bacalo, Death art there's a lot of ways dusk is like what if death was a depressed super kid (laughs) you know there's some definite i mean there's also a little bit of bb newworth doing all that jazz oh my god (laughs) thank you yeah it's right there you know the gin is cold and the piano's hot. I was going to say Liza and Cabaret a little bit. Oh, yeah, I see it. You know, Frasier. <laughs> but those are a lot of um, weird descriptors <laughs> to be using on a 18-year-old who is supposed to be one-fourth of a cool teen team. <laughs> yeah, and there is a lot to be said for the way she sort of bursts out of being dead. We spend so much time in this issue just sort of not exactly talking about how dead she is. Like, she wakes up in a fucking morgue. This isn't like, uh, sometimes you talk weak shit and it's always worth noting where a character is like, no, I'm tough. And you're like, no. But like, she wakes up in a morgue. That's gob. (laughs) She spends part of this issue on a slab. Actually dead. This isn't MTV's fear. She isn't dared to hang out in some sort of weird headmaster's quarters where he did satanic rituals with teen boys for the U.S. military. This is girl is dead on a slab and you didn't see it happen because it happened in issue zero. And unfortunately, that isn't one of those things that like adds some spice and mystery to what the fuck is going on. Yeah, a lack of context doesn't really add mystery. It just (laughs) adds a lack of context. Especially because her reaction to being dead, waking up in a morgue, uh, none of it... is anything like she just continues to kind of she is still alive she is not a ghost 
but she behaves like I don't even want to say a ghost because ghosts usually like want revenge or haunting somebody. She's just kind of showing up being there. Yeah. She's just sort of like looming. It's one thing she does. She can loom like a motherfucker. And I just really speaking of people who just kind of have to hang around like I feel like Richie does not get treated very well in this book beyond the fact that he has the as he describes it palsied arm. I think what we're looking at is a character where they were reaching for something. They were reaching for a story about characters with disabilities and now we've both spoken about being you know partially disabled or having invisible disabilities and I think Richie is exemplary of the sort of half measure that the 90s were allowed to take. Mm. You could point to his inability but you could never point to his ability and then when you could point to his ability it was very look at how this blind person has learned to drive and that's (laughs) not really the story we're trying to tell here so I don't know I also love that you compared Hornet to the buzz I think that is such a great parallel I think if you were to kind of fuse it I would love it if the Hornet character had actually been also one of the buzz trainers and this way when the hot one died he could (laughs) just shut this up yeah it's true it's true I forget his name but it was hot as shit um when he died he could this one could keep training jack so i like that how nice it would have been to connect this in other ways besides a vague reference to that time spider-man took on other identities how cool it would have been to pick up a thing or two that is very even if it's like kind of a deep cut but you know is referencing some of the broader spider-man mythology in other ways the giant hornet splash i'm making a note about a thing that has mostly changed in comics he is not literally coming out of that window right like four times the width of the window with a wingspan six times greater (laughs) he's not really coming through that window i like to think it's a perspective thing the window is much larger than we realize the wings fold up until he's out right but then what about his giant shoulder pads because at the moment he looks like brooke shields in the first season of suddenly susan deep burn well you know what can i say oh this one's eddie not richie oh no (laughs) (laughs) that's even i think what i mean yeah like i don't know that their full personalities really came across hornet is eddie mcdonahue and he is suddenly interesting dusk you uh, is the only woman and uh, is an insane like goth girl so very recognizable Ricochet has white hair and is definitely the hot, cool one. But he's kind of the gambit of his group. Everybody looks cool. Right. But unlike Gambit, he like just is not cool. It's weird. The other two are in their human forms, not interchangeable. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Look, it's Big White. Big White is here and he's flying. (laughs) They're not interchangeable because they do have, you know, Eddie is partially disabled. Like, that's very important to the character, but their outfits kind of blend together. The personalities just, it doesn't seem to matter that any of them have names. You would more identify them by either their costume or the big facts about them that are apparent as soon as they get on screen when they're in their street clothes. The other difference between these characters is I feel like they all got different genres. Mm. Dusk 
got this creepy atmospheric <laughs> sort of feel to it. I'm into it. I love it. It's kind of art housey for the time. <laughs> and then uh, Eddie's just makes me cringe. But it's like, you know, I think I think I can speak in Grey's Anatomy. It's that time George was really upset because Meredith cried during sex with him. It's that kind of cringe. Yeah. Oh, he wasn't I am yet. impressed. Uh, you nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. I, I tried speaking uh, Unicorn Palace Hospital for you. It's just, it's a painful sequence. He is just so fucking cringe, yep. so embarrassing, and it goes on for so long, and it actually features, in my mind, some of the weaker art in the issue. It's a little, a little disjointed, and where it goes in the narrative, the conversation between Johnny and Eddie that's taking place immediately following uh, the shared opening sequence, because there are several shared sequences, it breaks up the ricochet narrative a bit when you put it all together which i don't really mind because i think that makes ricochet seem like he's in more of the book (laughs) and i love ricochet i'm a little frustrated by the inclusion of kathy i think for such a fucking queer mo giving him hardcore girlfriend is a little a little much and it is very especially because they do not like they're comic book characters there's no reason they shouldn't have chemistry they don't need to act they literally can do anything you want them to and yet somehow these two have no chemistry it's because it's not just that they have no chemistry it's that it's very like we are good friends lovers (laughs) yes lovers and we share secrets many secrets go hero do the saving i will remember stay fertile for me and like off into the night and i think it is tropesy and i think it's kind of kind of moopsy and i'm Mm -hmm. not here for it uh yeah that is exactly correct and i ricochet is so gay he is so coded so queer Mm -hmm. big gay vibes like gay in your face and i love it because Mm -hmm. me too bro hey (laughs) but the thing that makes this not work is there's an inauthenticity like there's no black characters the only woman is killed off possibly because she's so depressed at her own existence i mean (laughs) hey girl what's up me too that's it's not the story we're trying to tell here. And there is something about Prodigy where I love his aesthetic, but he sort of looks like Beta Ray Bill. He also sort of looks like he's in like a big metal diaper, but he also sort of looks always naked. And he also kind of looks like Spawn's cousin, Sun Spawn. And I love all of this, but he feels more like a costume with a sad vibe than a character at times. All of the weird stuff you just said is not really celebrated like there's if i will give everybody a kind of big note on something that i feel like could have changed the entire tone of the art and the story it doesn't seem like anybody who's part of this creative team knows what camp is nor has any ability to celebrate how insanely camp every single thing about this entire idea for a book is because the overall thing that grips me is this issue has no sequences of the whole team all together yeah the the moment that ought to be that 
that is this weird thing involving a train and a guy who is he committing suicide? I'm not sure. <laughs> this book has a the, lot the second of possible suicide. We have no idea about. <laughs> yes. It's all very like, look at this thing. Cut to the next one. <laughs> it's sort of like, I remember really vividly my dad describing Harriet the spy as a 90 minute music video. <laughs> That's and being like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. And I'm like, you don't understand art. Michelle Trachtenberg is a gem. And like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm 10 or whatever. And so, hey, of course, her I'm washing her pits in the bathroom changed everything for me. I was never going to be the stinky kid again. Dude, I tried to block. Oh, God, my brain. So, so yeah, I think this suffers a little bit from my dad hates Harriet the Spy Syndrome. <laughs> that classic affliction. <laughs> classic affliction it's in all the medical journals everyone's talking about it this is only connected because they tell us it's connected there's no feeling that everything that these guys are doing like they they, they don't come together which is problematic in terms of like getting us excited about a team book but conceptually it's just not cohering at all and now, obviously, for those playing at home, we have found TK's laughing eye roll. Nico is going to be ridiculous about homoeroticism moment of the issue. Uh, well, there's actually a second one, and I can't believe it hasn't come up yet, but go. This wrestling sequence, <laughs> it literally looks like two Asgardians wrestling. I mean, this, this is, is what like... I'm talking about when I say there's no celebration of the camp. No, this is like super fucking gay. This is like 80s horror movies movie gay this is like sears catalog in the bathroom when no one's looking gay this it is, is insane to Macy's draw them like this gay. yes <laughs> this is the faggotry is like i have an alarm and my phone is letting me know that the faggotry in today's forecast is just out of control when this page is open yeah it's i mean god i love it so much but i don't understand why it is there if we're not going to have fun with the fact that it's so gay who like who was serious about this it is such a great book in so many regards it also misses the mark in uh, like frankly a ton of others but the speed at which the book starts to pick up this whole train sequence with prodigy everything with ricochet and the train sequence i find myself trying to keep up with the book and i'm very tired i understand that this was actually not designed as one giant book but thinking about the world we live in now we can't imagine a world where there's no expectation of the trade being more important than the individual issue and that's something that I think a lot of us kind of forget that the lifetime on a book greatly exceeds that first month sales the value the long term reality of a book whether it's because it comes up in another media or that very issue being read on Marvel Unlimited, being referenced in one of these fucking card games that, yeah, Marvel Snap, listen, get out of my life. And I no, I miss you. I'm so sorry. Come back. But also make some Slingers cards, please. Come back. Come back. Make a ricochet card. You say, please, relent. I want the cards released. I want the sets. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, what a damn industry. <laughs> so these books will live on. 
trades, hardcover, omnibus, they all sell. And when we think about how this is going to read, how it's going to be ultimately reread, our interactions with this book, our relationship with this book, what it does to our understanding of page time, character, story, I think I find myself eager to see where the book could go more than where it's going. Because after 92 pages, I'm bedraggled. And I said something similar about Dusk earlier and just like being fascinated by the character and thinking of all the cool ways she could exist in Marvel comic books over the next 20 years. But I'm not especially interested in Dusk in this book. The issue itself is not interminable or anything, but there is a sort of depreciative quality to the art toward the end, especially in some of the Dusk pages. However, the most, I don't know if this was part of the original pitch. I have no idea what the fuck is going on, but the Black Marvel stuff is simultaneously the most interesting thing in the book. And are you saying John Waters was a predatory, creepy rapist man? Are you saying John Waters touched you or something? Like, I'm not being indelicate. I'm like getting kind of, you don't like creepy, thin, old gay men vibes. And listen, creepy, thin, old gay men have taken care of us for many years. We they are the backbone of our society. Yes. So I just, what is that? The first thing I like thought about as soon as we got the reveal about Black Marvel was HBO's Watchmen because it has that same like vibe of like big reveal about classic history that turns out to be weirdly insidious. I mean, there are a lot of differences, but this is another moment in which how silly and over the top this book is. No one's leaning into it. So this is just like the kind of reveal that you are supposed to, I guess, take as very serious and a really important part of the mythology of these heroes. But it is a silly <laughs> and you really have no option but to kind of laugh at it because it will not laugh with you about it. It will not laugh with you. It takes itself deadly serious, which puts it at a disadvantage because it's not that I don't take the book seriously, but there really is no plot to the first issue. It's really just a lot of like... The CW style, this way's crawl part three playing in the background dramatic character moments. It's a series of previously ons. Yeah, but it's the sports night ones where they show <clears throat> stuff that was not in a previous episode at any point. Yes. Yeah. Or, you know, let's just take it. It's like the log lady intros for yes. Twin Peaks. Hey, log lady, I'll miss you forever. Mm, rest now, we have taken so long <clears throat> to get through one and zero. It's really important to understand that as much as it feels like, you know, we just spent so long talking about zero and one at 112 pages, but the reality is issues two, three, four, five, and six are barely longer than that. That's staggering. That's 110 pages. Oh my God, it's shorter. I have to go. <laughs> That's unreal. We're talking about two issues that constitute such a significant amount of the story that now I really think issues one and zero would be their own trade with some sort of previously on that explains identity crisis the story where Spider-Man wore all of these costumes that generated this title and then we would see two through six which vaguely packaged together in a second volume with seven through 
through 12 as a final volume because there is no fucking way that I can imagine them saying, nope, automatically volume one is 260 pages. Go buy it. It doesn't help that the first arc, uh, everything up to issue five is kind of in the same spirit as these number ones like the team isn't really coming together they're more together than they were in this first issue four times but there is never a moment in which you're like aha the slingers and yet for the second arc the book tries to just kind of pretend as though that moment has happened which it, it's so weird because it feels like they're just not noticing yeah <laughs> <laughs> we are they're not so the main thing i walk away from this big opening slingers bit is is that dust being in the shadows is sort of a really powerful metaphor for essentially the story that i'm reading dusk is providing me as a reader with an opportunity to interact with the being othered in a lot of ways but unfortunately she's one of the more interesting things about the book so i find myself just generally at a disadvantage here i want to like slingers zero and one more than i do i think i like them more than i want to as well i ultimately have to give these this zero one experience like you know a realistic c yeah unfortunately i was hoping you were going to go to c because we're not really close to a B minus, but I wish that we were. <laughs> because what I want more than anything is to see this book succeed in the past. <laughs> I want to, you know, I would have loved it if one of these guys became an Avenger. I would have loved it if Ricochet found a home with the X-Men. He would have been awesome in Joe Casey's Uncanny. That oh, would have good been call. So cool. And he would have translated really well into a book later on like District X mm -hmm. or X-Factor. He would have had great vibes in something dynamic down the line, like either Mike Carey's uh, X-Men or something really challenging, like perhaps a book like Ed Brubaker. Bakers that became Matt Fraction's Californian X-Men. There would have been some really cool things out there for that story. And the promise of Slingers, like so many times on this show, greatly exceeds the book itself. I give the promise of this 112 pages an A++. <laughs> but I give what we got a C. But it's such a goddamn grounded C. It's like a real fucking C. It is mystically tied to this graveyard and its soul cannot leave these hollow grounds <laughs> leaving it like averaging a c plus it's that level of c it just isn't good but the way that it makes you want to find the best things about it it's not just even that you like see the potential or anything like that it's that the setup the on paper concepts are so there and you really just all you can think about is like one or two different decisions in the past and this book kind of going off in a totally different direction and it's there but it just so isn't fulfilling any of that promise like it's it's so not there that you're not even thinking about the promise you're thinking about the promise of the promise 
There's also something frustrating about how incomplete a vibe I get from this first issue. I'm left wondering who these characters are still. So, of course, I immediately want to pick up the second issue. And just on the subject of this book having a zillion covers to every issue, there is a variant cover to issue number two. And not trying to be critical, it's just not good. It certainly is not justifying doing this. No. And there is something about a book that starts with four different number ones after a zero that you couldn't buy by itself. You had to buy a magazine to get this book. It just feels like you had to buy the four covers to get the book, to read the one that came with the magazine, to get the zero, the the fucking house that Stan built. It's just like... unlock the power. It's overwhelming. I just Mm -hmm. want to eat the fucking rat. You know what I mean? Yep. Slinger's the second. Here's the thing. I am challenged and impressed and appreciate that they gave me a reason to like a Spider-Man appearance here. I'm not hard-pressed to like Spider-Man, especially this sort of fun-loving, thick, dumb boy Spider-Man. He's a lot of fun, but I don't know. They're just like, I don't need him here. I don't need him at all. Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, this really is a particular place in, because, you know, it's Spider-Man. It's a an ace up Marvel sleeve at any time. If you can throw Spider-Man in, of course, like, why wouldn't you? But actually, this is kind of the one time where specifically you should not. Yeah, because it infringes on these characters and their opportunity to step into their own self. There's a real there's a real hard truth to the fact that Spider-Man cannot really be the hero that Spider-Man wants to be. Spider-Man is defined by his need to be charming and yet manage responsibility. Responsibility. One of the things that's complicated about that is the weight of responsibility is difficult for Spider-Man in particular. He suffers from a weird sort of dual brain. He's hyperlogical, his science self, but he's also a fantasiful escapist. And we can see that between his photography and his love of quips, right? So Spider-Man is a guy who exists in two worlds on two levels. It's, it's a real mental balancing act for him as a man and as a hero because his heroic persona is what people respond to. He's known as Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. He's not known as the Spider-Flying Nightmare Man. He's Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man, as opposed to Daredevil, who many people think of as the Guardian Devil. Nobody thinks Daredevil, friendly motherfucking guy. They think Daredevil, the devil, right? So when you think about Spider-Man needing his persona to be joyous and exciting, and he needs the whole world to see him smile, it creates this heaviness for the character that he has to balance at all times, right? And part of the way that Spider-Man is able to balance that for the reader is the character works in cycles. Now, if he was a real human being, he would need therapy that we can't even begin to imagine. Uh, I'm sorry. As the human being that he is in Marvel Comics, he still needs therapy. It's just the only therapist is Doc Samson. Yeah, and I mean, like, the bill at this point is, like, the proceeds from the last two years of Joel at the Garden. You know what I mean? It's like, it's out of control. And And so Spider-Man has this complex relationship as a character where every few years they just sort of need to reset him. But that means over the years, we've built up a number of Spider-Men, right? And that's the only way you can handle the duality of a character that actually is a diamond with a dozen, two dozen.
dozen, three dozen facets, right? And Spider-Man is a character. He's either a scientist or a photographer, or he's a businessman, or he's a student, or he's a professor, or he's a cousin, or he's a friend, and he's a secret brother, and he's a father, and he's a mentor. And this character represents so many things that in order to showcase all of them, they come up with this dynamic, multi-prong approach where they take the idea of with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And they distill the idea of Spider-Man into four separate characters. And all of them miss the fucking mark. But they all have bits of it. The beholden to the nature of a fallen idol in Uncle Ben versus the Black Marvel. It's very different parallels, but you know, hey, it's the 90s. Eat a dick. And I think there's a lot to be said of the showman of Spider-Man and Ricochet. There is the inherent wrong side of the tracks kind of like, you know, there's times where like young Peter Parker in the glasses, in the flannel shirt, sitting on the bleachers is just this side of singing, I'm not that girl reprise <laughs> and it that's very much hornet and then there's dusk and i really don't know what they were trying to do with dusk but she doesn't really line up with the the spider-man mentality outside of perhaps the further exploration of a dark power that challenges her understanding of her ability not necessarily dark evil but dark in terms of you know a heavy manifestation of physical ability and when you put spider-man in that when this is meant to be a distillation of spider-man now the problem He's here. What the fuck was the point? And, you know, it's why at some point the characters have to stop appearing on the spin or right. it's just never going to find it. That is the perfect example. And, you know, I remember back in the day just always wanting Angel to show up on Buffy because I was too invested as a teen in their relationship and the idea that if Angel kept showing up, there was always hope that the two of them would get back together. Together, if Buffy could cross over into Angel, so much the better. But on top of all of the problems with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I now see that like it in that that first season where it was happening multiple times and they did the one episode where they like have the perfect moment together. It really kind of dragged both shows down from what was otherwise a really clean split. And you I, I think, as I said, I think that's the perfect metaphor because you really do have to let these things work on their own merit for a solid amount of time you can always you always have the choice of in the future you know once the, this team is established spider-man coming back and being like man i can't believe you guys did it but to do it early on it always becomes that thing of like don't worry we're not taking any risks your guy is still here and in the we're not taking any risks like they're almost saying the you can't believe it but we did it no i can believe you did it yeah this is not not very impressive no oh you did dracula no i can believe you did that and that's not at buffy just in general no. like yeah. oh you did you did santa claus yeah i can believe you did that yeah yeah you know it's not like always so outlandish you know what is outlandish though <laughs> this mm -hmm. issue issue two does some outlandish things the spider-man fight sure i don't hate him being here i don't hate him beating on ricochet but i do sort of resent his inclusion if mm -hmm. that makes sense but oh my god cassie's dead her family <laughs> is like mourning her 
It, there's a cave-in involving <laughs> mutated rats. Ricochet having an actual panic attack. And Prodigy seems like he has no emotion. Except for, like, disdain for these people he voluntarily spends time with. Which, then, why? Why do you spend... Go be your own hero. And that's one of those things. Like, nobody told you guys to write this book. If you're going to write it, don't make characters that are telling us, like, I don't even want to be here. You literally get to choose what the characters say and do. You can figure out how to have somebody who has a chip on their shoulder, but wants to be a part of, or is, like, integral to the story. If they're not feeling integral to the story and they seem miserable to be around... you're never going to be able to root for them. No. And I think the element here that had me surprised was the not just inability to root for these characters in this second issue, but also the general sense that this title doesn't want me to invest in the characters. Issue two didn't make me feel like, oh, these heroes that I care about. It made me feel sort of like these people wearing Spider-Man man's pajamas <laughs> but even that it left me is feeling very just saying that is kind of a sell to me feeling it, but this it third won't issue even, oh, sorry go ahead no you please go it won't even embrace what would be the fun of these kids in spider-man pajamas because that could actually be a blast. The Power Pack kids running around in Spider-Man pajamas. I there you go. It. But this book ratchets up the drama so hard with this arc. There's something about the life or death stakes, the team not being a team, Dusk already coming in, the heaviness of not knowing what's going on with the Black Marvel, the way all of these characters are interacting with one another. There's a general sense that the title isn't in it for the long haul. I almost feel. It's trying to get through a lot of these big moments because it's building to something. It's just so unfortunate that it feels right away like they started off with a break them up to pull them back together arc, which doesn't really make any sense for an opening arc. I don't feel connected to these characters because of it. Instead, I feel a very disjointed sense of their danger and their peril. I keep not realizing when things are happening, in part due to what is meant to be a very friendly Genetic storytelling. It's hard to keep track of the Spider-Man intersecting with them the same night kind of stuff. There is a, a chronology problem here. It's the same problem that you get in the uh, four number ones when it comes to all the different angles of the possible suicide train derailment story, um, which, again, is the moment at which they're technically all kind of by accident being a team. But because you never really get them on panel together, let alone together and like actually coordinating, it just is chaotic. There's never the payoff of, okay, despite all that chaos, when all is said and done, we got the team together. It just is a chaotic moment. I feel like the chaos translates directly into the characters. There is a disjointed sense of what the characters want. And the fact that they don't really connect as a team comes out in the way that we already have characters keeping secrets from one another with Hornet and Dusk agreeing to keep secrets from Prodigy. There really is no moment of unity in a way that distracts me as the reader from feeling like this book could be for me. The second and third issues just whiz by so fast and it doesn't really feel 
feel like it's necessary to be two issues, especially with the deconstructed nature of zero and one. I feel as though zero told one very specific incident in a way that was very significant. And then one told everybody having multiple adventures all happening at the same time separately, except for the pages they shared. And then we get two and three, which sort of tell the same adventures a couple of times for all of the characters out of sequence, where even the characters agree not to share the adventures with one another. This was not looked at quite as holistically. I still love the vibe. I still love what they're going for. And a number of the characters, the more we're talking about it, I am remembering what I liked more and more about it. But I find myself challenged by some of the expectations that the creative team has for me to interact with these characters. I just... When you give me a setup like the one you just described, where zero is this really specific incident, then we have the four number ones giving us kind of a little slice of everybody that never quite touches. I don't understand how these first two, these next two issues, two and three, don't kind of culminate with a moment in which they are all together on even in, even in one panel. You know what I mean? Like, let alone to come together on two or three pages, like with this cave in and all work together and get out of it. Like, I understand that part of this is the conflict of them not becoming a team, but there is a point at which if you're selling me a team comic book and you keep saying they're not coming together as a team, then I don't understand why I'm buying this team comic book. Because if it is meant to focus on one of them more than any of the others, if it's meant to be about a specific character, then just kind of tell me that. I'll yeah, know Ricochet and the that. Slingers. Truly, truly. But I wonder if part of it is to facilitate the Black Marvel plot because Prodigy has the least character and his character often feels creepy, a little vaguely evil maybe even. Mm-hmm. And Hornet feels very... Very ill effective because he's so hindered by his feelings for Dusk, but Dusk is clearly into Ricochet, so it feels like a love triangle I didn't need. In which one of the characters is a zombie ghost goth. Yeah, the book remains interesting. This whole Atlas, not Atlas, sorry, this whole Grand Royal Hotel as the setting for this over-the-top situation that tests our ability to believe in the Black Marvel is interesting. I like that the Black Marvel is like, for power! <laughs> and Prodigy's like, for justice? <laughs> and Black Marvel's like, for power? Sure. <laughs> sure. And Prodigy's like, oh, okay. He said for justice. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, 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 little boy. Oh, no, no. That is kind of a creepy gay getaway. <laughs> well, and then there's, there is that vibe, which is... I don't feel is like even intentional on a subtextual level because this book so does not appear capable of doing subtle intention of any kind. But I believe through pure accident, the fact that you have this silly uh, John Waters-esque Black Marvel figure and his insanely beautiful stacked 
protege and there's so much skulking around and secrecy and things happening in darkened rooms it does feel like there is a there is a vibe of uh predatoriness regarding black marvel and prodigy that is totally unintentional i think but because this book just stumbles into so much stuff that it doesn't recognize about itself it's this thing that keeps happening that just is uncomfortable and the uncomfortability is really pervasive there's something that feels like i'm looking in on something i shouldn't be seeing in a lot of four and five the atmosphere in this arc this big the black marvel has a scenario engineered where he's going to be the hero this very pulitzerian yellow journalism yellow heroism i guess oh i like that yeah Um, but again this is a moment in which you are doing a better job conceptualizing than anybody who is producing this book is doing with the same concepts yes that's my response yes (laughs) i love a book that makes the reader work for it and you see some really on the ball creators who are like no you have to get yourself there this does not feel like a creator said you have to get yourself there this feels like we have to get ourselves there because they didn't help ultimately i think the failing of slingers can be summarized in the pacing issues that are made very apparent in the pacing of zero into one into two three into four five four five feel like they should be a high point of the series they feel like they should be a big reach moment and they should be bringing us something but instead i find myself sort of tossed back and forth just for the play of it i don't feel so much like slingers four and five are treated with the real heaviness they should be in comics i think for me not always but frequently the weight you give a story tells me how much i should care and if you're not pushing the story as far as you can i'm not gonna feel like it's as big a deal i feel very much like i was told this story has the same weight as the rats sewer story and i feel like it was told it has less weight than issue one which really didn't have a central plot and i feel like everything that happens seems to trace back to zero yet zero was shorter than all of it so there really is a sense of where am i supposed to be putting my attention this big moment really doesn't feel like it has anything to do with dusk and true you can have something slow boiling in the background but it feels like it's just hanging over me yeah we're at four and five now uh and again after four number ones and a zero slow boil or no we do need to go somewhere with it and the dusk stuff just really doesn't seem to pick up very much until the next arc which again the next arc just feels kind of like we're all good now like the team's together but four five really is not the team still really is not coming together the actual event at the hotel is murky hard to follow there's frankly a lot of teleporting that makes the action kind of unclear dusk plays a weird role for a character who seems to not really still 
be in the action. And I wonder where the decision was to break the team apart repeatedly. At the end of five, the team being united doesn't feel earned. We've never really had it. And when it's here, the only role it seems to be playing is vaguely pushing our characters into more uncomfortable social situations. Superhero teams need to be more than a bunch of people who share a phone. It needs to be people who want to work together for a reason. I cannot figure out why these people want to work together. It's something that TK and I have joked about and talked about. I, once upon a time, thought those first few seasons of 30 Rock were just the best comedy of all time. And then the later seasons really lost me. And one of the things is I can see as a Jenna how somebody like a Tim Liz would want to take care of and love and protect a Jenna. By the end, I don't know how Liz Lemon doesn't want to drive a stake through Jenna's heart. (laughs) And like for her own good. And I think that's a little bit what I'm getting to here. I want these characters to want to get snugly with each other. And instead, I just want them to get help and away from each other. Especially coming out of uh, issue zero in which they do seem to want to be around each other. And they're just trying to figure out, like, do we have everything we need to be a team? They're like kind of sitting there, like ready to check off all the boxes. And then one of them accidentally falls off a building and or kills herself. There's no like this really shattered us. It's like just uh, the day after and they're all having a bad day. But we never return to that. Like and th- that bad day splits them up and they're all doing different stuff. But we never return to where we were on that rooftop in this un- unseen issue zero that nobody can get their hands on. In which for one shining moment, these four people were ready to be a team. It's like the thing the Slingers makes me realize is, oh God, the team that <laughs> Kane and Dark Devil oh, were part yeah. of yeah. was kind of sp- spiritually the slingers except they wanted to they like had a thing they were all frustrated by each other and it was like these guys again but like they seemed to want to work together not because they liked each other but because you can't do this all alone and we all have a shared goal of some kind i really do root for this book not just historically but for a reason to want to care i wonder how much of my passion for this book because like you know when we dug this fucker out uh, <laughs> Um, you know, like with Spider-Girl, I was like, yeah, this is, no, I just wanted to magically transform like J2. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it. And then like, after a while, a we kind of, of found, undertaking like, for that. But, but after a while, we found stuff that we really did love. And that was really cool. Yes. And then after a while, it was time to end. And yeah. we've kept going and we found something really powerful and symbolic that we love. And uh, we, we kept dialing further and we found this gem. And I feel like everything else 
really has paid off. And that we, you know, ultimately Spider Girl stoked something in us that we found fascinating. It reminded us about a sense of magic and wonder and whimsy. There's a freedom to a story like Spider Girl, but there is also a cagedness, an inability to step outside of the lane that even Ultimate Spider-Man at its best was a reimagining of someone that existed. So you were still looking at the same names coming up. And yeah, there were totally cool new twists and turns. I'm not diminishing the quality of Ultimate Spider-Man, but I'm saying the fucking thing is called Spider-Man featuring Peter Parker. It's fucking Spider-Man, guys. So the point I find on the other side of that is she's Mayday Parker and her name is Spider-Girl. But it's Spider-Man, guys. There is an inability to escape that continuous circuit that exists by the name. Slingers is called Slingers and it's treated like that book that isn't called Spider-Man. And <laughs> so it can be that book where the girl is like, mm, rooftop or the ground. Mm, you're called. Like, that, is that too macabre? <laughs> like, no, it's really not. It's a weird move on the part of the Slingers team to start out with the team so not together. I find that by the end of issue five, I have to give issues two and three like a C minus, but it is a diminished quality C minus because I gave zero one a C, but an A plus 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 for like intent. Mm -hmm. Intent on two, three is like a B plus. And mm -hmm. the arc is like a C minus. Yep. So it's like a C plus. But if the last one was like, it's a C plus, but it's like big smiles, everybody. You believe in it. You know, this one's going to go somewhere. Really cool art film from a college student. You can't wait for the next movie they make when they've got like an actual budget and a backer or something. But this is a, this is a heavy dose of reality. And then four and five are just literally hard to read at times. They're just kind of confusing. There's a lot of back and forth and that gets a C minus. But the C minus there is not tempered by any. I do just kind of feel like the book kind of goes like C plus C, C minus as you go arc by arc, two issues at a time. But Nico, if I can for a moment have you go to issue four and then page three, how have we not talked about this? Issue four ricochets insanely fuckable dad yeah okay <laughs> all right well i think the hair kind of throws me off <laughs> but let me just give it up for those legs right those legs and in the in, in the issue ones his fucking thigh muscles oh and his arms in the hallway crush a skull yes he is the uh, calves here are just perfection and you know johnny's not a bad looking boy it's interesting that johnny is so much more slight than his dad <laughs> he's slight so you know. i just you know i all problems aside i really felt like this was something we should talk about for a minute yeah and it's it's delicious is what it <laughs> is <laughs> but again one of those moments where like why is this dude kind of sexy if we're not gonna laugh about that or do something like who who draws a superhero's dad who is just kind of nobody 
but like with banging thigh muscles. What is the point of that? It's 90s thick, chunky art. It's fun. I mean, I love it. I just, as oh, I, yeah, I said. Oh, I do. I know you do. Yeah. It is- as I said, I just wish somebody was cracking up about it with us. Instead of just putting it in and it's going unnoticed and never being reprinted. Yeah, until a couple homos find it and laugh about it later. And ultimately, what grades would you lay in for 4-5 and 2-3? <sighs> Two, three, I think you, you said it exactly right. It's a C minus because even that intent is now kind of the luster has worn off. So we can't even use that to kind of bump the grade from a C to a C plus. Like we're dropping it now down to a C minus. The four and five... I will say, I think the art in four is, for a book that I already think has great art, the art in four to me is pretty special because it does something a little bit different than basically every other issue. It's still kind of in that same lane as house style, but it's just a little bit more of a artistic for lack of a better term uh art style that that created something a little more special to me the best example that i really can give is that there are a few times and one of them is on page 16 of issue four where like you finally kind of see what prodigy's costume would look like if it were working throughout the book so rather than looking like he's just kind of naked with piping you get a sense for a second of like the fact that it's just more yellow and like how that works with the other elements of the costume. There's just a moment where he looms large and you kind of get the effect of who this dude is supposed to be. And I feel like issues four and five have a lot of that where I am seeing more like, I think this is what you guys were going for. Okay. And the thing about that is you it kind of has you nodding and being like, "Okay, slingers, I see what you were trying to do. But then when you step back after reading it, you go, "Okay, I definitely see what you were trying to do. But um, you failed and I'm seeing it in a panel here and there in a different artist doing the costume a little differently. I'm never seeing it in a context of like, "Okay, you missed it in issues one through three but on issue four you knocked it out of the park even issue four it's just like okay in one panel i think i see it and that kind of for all of the benefits that's still kind of putting us in c minus territory because nothing is there's no shining thing that's like although a lot of this book didn't work that one thing really knocked it out of the park and i feel like because of that i can give it a c or even a c plus it's just like I saw what I was hoping for in one play in one panel, but the rest of it just still isn't working after four or five issues. And so, yeah, it ends up being about a C minus. I mean, maybe we're kind of even getting into D plus territory. I think there is something to be said in the saving grace of issue six. I don't love issue six in a lot of ways. It feels perhaps a little, I don't want to say hollow or easy, but issue six does make me feel like we are moving into an everything can be cleaned up really quickly. We can just explain everything and fix it and make it better. Yeah, 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 quick kind of territory that I feel maybe misunderstands the whole point of consequences. 
that's just a thing for me here. I don't really understand. Like, they're all just kind of like, oh, you know, every shit's under the bridge. And I'm like, no, everything is not shit under the bridge. And I think Hornet is a disaster in this issue. He is such a mess. And all of this Dusk is basically death by Bacalo just randomly inserted into some Spider-Man is great, but noticeable. And there's all of this backstory where Hornet's like, I'm gay for you, Dusk. And Dusk is like, I'm gay for Ricochet. That I'm like, sure. But then Prodigy is in this book too. Somewhere. (laughs) And also like, I'm gay for you, Dusk. I'm gay for Ricochet. And Ricochet is just like, I am also present on this rooftop. But not gay. (laughs) But not gay. But not gay. And I think the art here is one of those moments that I love that you can see when you can 1 trillion percent tell that the artist has finally had a chance to get these characters, to get their personality in the art, to really unlock their visual potential. It is so fucking cool, man. I love how Crisscross is able to elevate these characters visually to places that you couldn't get before. The head-bandaged ricochet and the dead-on shots has charisma and depth and wisdom in his eyes and I'm not being silly he feels like a person and that's something that comes from when the artist has a chance to more than just sketch the character I know in Kid Riot that's something that like it's almost difficult to go back and look at our earliest pages and I'm like nope that's not Kid Riot we need to fix that but like that's what the book was I'm not sure how I'm going to recall the copies and burn them but what am I gonna what is there an advertisement for Marvel douche in them I don't know (laughs) so I I think if I make one more reference to him he's gonna take over the show magically so I think I gotta start being careful so the darkest moments of slingers are all really front loaded there's this weird turning point and like I remember this turning point in comics in general I remember this turning point kind of like in fiction in general we hit this you can only get so bummed out moment in our fiction where we sort of remembered to leave the light on for hope and I wonder if the creative team we're told you have to change gears a little bit because issue six feels to me like the end of the book that started with issue zero and everything that follows is kind of the 90s at marvelification where every book had like that weird two-part fun arc that was in that other art style yeah cool art yeah trading cards and they just had this weird fill-in feel everything felt like a fill-in everything after six kind of feels like a fill-in with the exception of the final arc which feels like a different book's final arc i don't know that i can describe it any better you are right in that i have been kind of looking at this as zero through five and then six through twelve and i think if you let six be part of that first arc it definitely helps with things like how they feel as though they have become a team again without really ever doing anything as a team in issues zero through five you are again right seven and eight are fun i don't even say fun but like a little diversion a little bit uh there's much less pressure to try and give us the elements of the genesis of 
this team, but we're still a little bit trapped in the problems with pacing and just chaos in the book. And then I just I wish that what you never get is like one solid. We are a team on a mission. Here's our fight. We've won. There's such a sense of resignation almost in the pages of six. It's as if the team knows it's never going to be what it was promised to be. Mm. And I don't even know if it was ever going to be what it was promised to be, but it always felt to me as a kid, like this was the next it. And I thought about how old I was when this came out. If it was 98, 99, the majority of it came out when I was 13. I'm not saying that at 13 years old, I was the trend setting hit maker but I like to think that at 13 I had maybe really started to see what was just like a flashy costume and at the same time I guess not because MC2 was right around this same time I think Slingers had a lot of potential and it had a great setup but we all have a friend who is going to write a novel right and that friend has this amazing idea and at a party they you know they're telling you about it everyone's drinking a little bit and you know it's just the greatest idea you've ever heard as they're telling you and you're like this is the coolest story anyone's ever and they're like and they're telling you and they're so excited and you're like and then how does it how does it end and they're like you know i don't know (laughs) oh yeah it's i haven't written it yeah bye end of party that's slingers it just kept going and came to an ending just doesn't feel like the right ending all said and done i don't know that i give issue six a grade i think i see six like i said as this capstone and you wind up with two 222 pages that represent this first act of Slingers. The the honestly the action of Slingers. Everything that happens here out is sort of incidental. It I mean we could really talk about all of it in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Truly, it's do you just want to do it. <laughs> I don't even know if it's 15 minutes. We would mostly be talking about plot points because there's little things like Dusk being into Ricochet and that kind of very clearly not being a thing. But there really isn't for any character a moment of like... And that's the story of how Prodigy became the man he was meant to be or started on the journey to heroics, or that's how Hornet stopped being so goddamn cringe. They just are falling into those little pieces of character description that we gave early on over and over again. And that seven and eight work so hard to make two and three feel relevant. And even parts of one, with the Grizz with character, the, <laughs> the giant rats. There were some cool, like classic 80s Claremont touches I felt to seven and eight. There were some nice moments. There were some silly, cute, spidey moments with the hot dog cart becoming like the ricochet buggy that was really sweet and silly. But then how is that in the same book as the character that jumps off the building to her death? <laughs> like that does not go together. No. I do think though that the the major thing that we need to talk about more than the Grizz two-part arc which is forgettable underwhelming really i think it read all together in about eight minutes for me it it just was kind of like an okay okay kind of issue yeah issue nine nanny and orphan maker oh yeah for killing ricochet's mom (laughs) 
that took my breath away. I was not prepared for <laughs> Nanny and Orphan Maker killed Ricochet's mom. Ricochet's mom had been dead. That's one of the things that like early on you can see that the whole thing is that him and his dad kind of have this sad, uncomfortable relationship because the person that would mediate their awkwardness was Ricochet's mom and she's dead. And you don't really know much more than that. And there's something so bizarre about this two-part arc that feels like, okay, if one had not been this weird experiment, <laughs> I think, and zero hadn't been a weird experiment, I think zero through one would have really been like one through five. And I think two, three would have really been like six. So in a lot of ways, two, three really feels like a filler issue that became a filler two-parter that seven and eight feel like a filler two-parter making that one feel less filler, like giving that one a little bit more, this is why we did it. But it just feels more filler. If you do the numbering like that, then yeah, zero through five, issue one, four times, you know, our grades remain the same, but something about it pacing wise and in terms of comic book storytelling feels a little bit more on. And then yeah, two and three would be filler issues, but four, five and six, I guess, give you that kind of like doing what they can to pay off the promise of zero through the four ones seven and eight another fill-in set this issue nine is it's not i mean it's not good or anything but the idea that nanny and orphan maker killed ricochet's mom what it does is give you some payoff and buy-in into the slingers being a real bigger part of the marvel universe oh you want a bigger part of the marvel universe <laughs> sure black marvel dies bye and then it turns out this whole thing this complex Spider death, <laughs> multiple character engineering plot was Mephisto. Mephisto, you say? <laughs> Mephisto. This is literally okay. just the plot of the current Avengers run. And one more day. It's if you combine. It's <laughs> straight up. What if you one more day the Avengers? You know what? No, let's take it a step further. One day more. What if you throw in a little lay mid? I uh, this arc is ridiculous. Um, Terrible look they, from Mephisto. Sorry, gotta throw that out there. Uh, gotta, gotta, gotta <laughs> throw it. Throw it hard. It's not just a terrible look from Mephisto, which it is, but it's not a great arc. There's not a whole lot that I feel is generated by it. I don't feel given any real sense of understanding. There's no point at which I feel like, oh, this explains to me what the Black Marvel was doing. Essentially, the Slingers find the themselves in hell which they get to through the billboard i don't know how we haven't mentioned it but there's this billboard that they keep <laughs> hanging out on which is one of the 90s is or, or touches mm -hmm. of this book that they're always hanging out on a billboard like and it's like like dirty stay out ne'er-do-well hang out on a billboard it's like it's not like we're those stoop kids it's like they're always on a billboard ready to fight a fucker and it always seems like it's each other they don't have a rogues gallery it's the rat you guys <laughs> their rogues gallery is also their mentor and this other rat it's like they said what if we take splinter and just split them into two bad guys that yeah. is so perfect um no but you are absolutely right they do not have a rose gallery which okay whatever of course they don't it's a brand new team they barely have their like you know they're barely even working together as a superhero team how could they have a villain it is a mutated sewer rat <laughs> who appears a lot for no reason. You know, if you're going to have an obstacle slash villain appear this much give us something or again 
have fun with the fact that it's a sewer rat. Make us crack up about it. The fact that it reappears could be funny. Instead, it's just like, can you believe how mutated it got? These guys are fucked. And then Black Marvel, same thing, because if you're not going to lean into the fact that he is a weird, lecherous type who has a protege, large, sexy teen, I don't know what else you do with it. But just the fact that he just was kind of a self-serving asshole and then he goes in the hospital, dies, and then it turns out he was Mephisto all along or was possessed by Mephisto all along. That's insane enough to really ratchet things up. But they never do that thing of like, if you go back and read it, you will see that it was Mephisto all along. It is as though they just realized that they had enough room to say that it was Mephisto and nobody would question it. But there is really you don't feel like they had the planning that from issue one, they knew this was going to be a Mephisto thing. So how can we kind of foreshadow, seed some ideas that something's not right? It just kind of is Mephisto. End of story. And it for all that it makes you, like I said, you know, for all that these things connect them to the larger Marvel universe, it really is unfortunate because when you're talking about things like One More Day, or this new Avengers run that Mephisto is a huge part of, Jason Aaron's current Avengers run, it, it feels like these guys could have been part of something. Like, how cool would it have been if one of those, One More Day or the current Avengers run, remembered that this happened, that the Slingers happened, that Mephisto was there? How cool would it be if it had mattered even one iota, such that even though it might be difficult to find... You could the way that Jonathan Hickman like pulled silly little things from Generation X into his Hawkspox and his first X-Men run. And you really were like, wow, I can't believe that somebody remembered that. This has all the potential to be something like that. But because there's not a single thing that you can carry with you from 1999 all the way through to 2022, this is just another weird forgettable moment in time it's nice to see other books mentioning it it's nice to see that it came up in either i think it was a ben riley book and the big thing for me that i walk away with this feeling is at the end of issue 12 they're like well we did it (laughs) we We saved his immortal soul (laughs) and i'm like you have some sort of disconnect from reality <laughs> it's a very Rube needs to sit toilet seat down and have a conversation about that's not how souls work. <laughs> and I am bothered that at the end of 12, which we know ultimately was originally supposed to be a double issue and isn't, that there's kind of a sense of incompleteness. There's a real disconnect, a real sense of forgotten to the book that this started as. The book this started as in 1998 had a real 
potential edge to it, a grittiness. There was something a little bit more train spotting and a little bit less Thomas the Tank. And it's not, oh my God, train spotting with Thomas the Tank would be the greatest <laughs> film I've ever seen. Oh my God. Okay. I can't. I do really like that, like the train spotting as just a little piece of 90s reference in terms of like just that little bit of edge in issue zero where you were like it feels like there's something here and we know so little about these kids except for these little stylistic points that we have and the fact that one of them may be killed ourselves that this feels like it could go anywhere but i know that it's starting with that little bit of edge and then that edge is immediately blunted in issues one and it, it just continues from there to kind of not ever be able to capitalize on that one moment where the style and the substance were just like who knows? This could be cool. For the 90s fill-in book that 7 through 12 are clearly a part of, I give this a C-. For the final six issues of the dark mystery I was promised in Zero, I give... I mean, this is recognizing that this has mutated sewer people that are vaguely in some way connected to our hero's follies, <laughs> the death of one of their parents at the hands of a vaguely recognizable X-Men villain and satan okay. with no nose with no nose i'm still giving it a d if this is the end of zero it's a d if this yeah. is its own oh slingers <laughs> kind of book yeah it gets a c minus it might even be better at being a silly 90s marvel spider-man villain spin-off you know oh boy it's the slingers kind of title than zero was at being the severe thing it was but zero had potential man Zero had zero was your first time like sneaking out. You're just a dirty stay out now. And like it feels good. You're a bad kid. You can do this. You hang out on a billboard. You can do anything. And like it had all of those vibes. And then I don't know. The end of 12 does have a little bit. It feels like we're not going to notice. It feels like the creative team thinks we're not going to notice a transition from something maybe a little bit less rough than a train spotting something maybe a little bit more perhaps chasing Amy it feels like Ooh, we're not gonna another notice. good reference we're not going to notice a change from chasing Amy to party of five and I know that it's party of five with Satan right he's the surprise oh you mean Lacey Chabert five and one of John Favreau's guests that week is Satan no nos <laughs> it's it just you know I kind of even feel like dust comes running in and she's like Bailey Bailey, no! No, Bailey, no! You know, it's terrible. <laughs> Obviously, Bailey is ricocheted. Of course. Obviously. Who's Julie Bowen? And Hornet is... What? what? I said, who's Julie Bowen? Oh, I don't know, because I was going to say that Charlie is obviously Prodigy. Mm -hmm. And I guess that makes... Oh, ooh, Hornet's Julia. That's... We're going to have to do another episode where we just go over the uh, analogous Party of Five casting for Slingers. Stay but tuned for that, folks. there's only four of them. No, you got to count Black Marvel. <laughs> oh, and Spider-Man. <laughs> there you go. Spider-Man can be Wilson Cruz in season six. So, <laughs> hey, guys, I'm Spider-Man. I'm your gay nanny. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another facet of the Spider-Man jewel that I just don't feel like this book 
paid off on. No, no, it didn't. All said and done, I I liked it. I really did. And you know what? I'm the one who made us do it. Mm-hmm. I did it. Mm-hmm. It was me. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're playing Cluedo in the UK or Clue, as makes sense in America. In the sane world. Slingers, though, not what I wanted it to be. Really uh, an exciting read, an exciting thing to go down, a much less involved go down because, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately MC2 proper took us 15 episodes and the post wave was like another five and now we have like you know the continued adventures of things that don't involve may <laughs> like full time it's our new job does it not have may in it let's read it let's get there i give slingers on the whole a big a big thumbs down i don't think anybody should go too far out of their way to spend the money to get it if you can pick this guy up for under 40 you're good if you spend more than 40 you gotta really like these characters this is definitely like a fun, like you find it the whole run in like the 25 cent to dollar bin at a comic shop and they've got the whole thing and you're like, I got a little cash on me. It would be like, especially if you get that zero, it'd be a f- like fun little, I don't it's like almost kitschy, but like whatever the 90s equivalent of kitsch is where it's that thing that looks like it's going to be train spotting and then slowly dulls from chasing Amy into party of five. You know, that thing. That 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 old gem. <laughs> that old um, gem. Mm-hmm. Well, Slingers, thanks for the ride. We have other totems to examine, other universes to be held in, other AUs to visit, and rabbit holes to ribbit down i think this has been a great thing to remember that sometimes we look and it doesn't (laughs) like and that's a fucking victory you know anything you have a better understanding of who spider-man is and it's good to learn and it's really important to remember that even if we take a look at something like slingers and we say it's not what i thought it was going to be it's important to just remember that you looked at a thing and this holistic understanding of Spider-Man as a hero is so important to the idea of this character, this legacy, this thing that has continued and has become an industry. The number of people who have waited their whole life to create on this character and now have this chance and the number of people who this character brings hope, the iterations, the number of characters based on this character around the world, people who lobby to get this license. Spider-Man is an industry and this idea that the character has these core values, these core bases that need to be explored. You kind of do need to test those limits sometimes. And it's okay to test them and see that it doesn't work. That's okay. There hasn't been one of these that I regret yet. Even the ones that I'm like, that that wasn't a great series or a great issue or a great character. I'll miss you, Slingers. But until we come back to Sling Slang some more stuff, TK, where can everybody find you online? You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And of course, you can find me on Wednesdays and Fridays on this show talking about what the fuck's going on in Limbo. As always, you can find me a bunch of those same places. Plus, you can find all of us over on the partner channel for this series over on YouTube at Hubs Plus Network. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And this show over on Twitter at X's for Podcast and X's for Podcast.com. And until next time, when we come back to look at some more totems or some more whatevers, I don't know. We're just looking at a bunch of stuff. It's real exciting. Keep these mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, the Slingers managed to come together 
in the end. So there's hope for any super team out there. And we'll see you.